This episode is brought to you by Cobalt Press, Warlock Grimoire 2. The Warlock Grimoire 2 presents a plethora of content from issues 10 through 19 of the Warlock zine and includes an entire issue's worth of new, never-before-seen lore and game elements, uncover the truths of the dark fantasy of Midgard campaign setting, or for worlds of your own creation. Head on over to CritAcademy.com slash Cobalt Press to pick up your copy today. Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. I'm Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. And I'm your co-host, Austin. And I'm your co-host, Ian. And we are here to help inspire you with creative content that you can bring to your next adventure. Thanks to Lore Smith for giving us the modular dungeon tile sets to give away, and specifically this time, the Arcania set. Now, the Arcania digital tile set lets you make dark, shadowy dungeon maps rich with the fumes of arcane secrets. Oh. Uh, on one hand... um. In one wall of this dungeon, maybe you won't find anything because apparently the DM wasn't very thorough with his planning. On the other hand, maybe you might find the finished product of our show that goes great. If you find it, please let me know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's our winner today? <laughs> our winner today is Christopher Cooper, 3000. Congratulations, buddy. Congratulations on your pro- product. Um, if you didn't win, have no fear. You can head on over to CritAcademy.com slash Loresmith and get all kinds of free fat loots, compliments of Chris from Loresmith. Um, I'm really excited for our show today. Um, we are going to be joined by the legendary Mike. Uh, is it Shay? Yeah, Mike Shay. Yep, Mike Shay, a.k.a. Sly Flourish, which honestly, I'm trying my damnedest not to fanboy over right now. Um, we are going to be discussing the Lazy Dungeon Master and the sequel, right? The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> Mike, for people who aren't uh, fanboys such as myself, can you yeah, uh, tell people. us a little... Yeah, right? Most people. <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do in the world of Dungeons & Dragons? Sure. Um, so all I all I all I do of note is do stuff for Dungeons and Dragons. So there's just nothing else really worth talking about. Except my hus- husband and my husband and my wife is probably above me. Next in line. Got to throw that in there a little bit. Yeah, that's important. Um, and uh, so yeah, I started writing about D and D. So I've been playing D and D forever, and I started writing about D and D in the early. I think it was 2008. 2008. That sounds about right. So about 12 years ago. Uh, when they were just transitioning to fourth edition and blogging was blogging had been a thing for a while. Twitter was pretty much brand new. And the, the idea of sort of live blogging things was totally new. And I, I got kind of lucky by live blogging some of the fourth edition release stuff. And that brought attention that I, that I liked. And I was like, you know, I could actually write a more formal blog about this and, and I'll focus it on dungeon master stuff and I'll focus it on fourth edition D and D. And I'll write tips and tricks for DMs to be able to run better games for fourth edition D&D. Right. And um, there weren't, you know, D&D in fourth edition had far fewer people playing it and kind of interested in it than, um, than fifth edition does now. 
Uh, but, and we had kind of a small community of about 10 or 12 bloggers that all kind of knew each other. And we all met at conventions and we all talked all the time and we were always sharing each other's posts and stuff like that. And, um, that worked really well. And then about two or three years into about, I guess it'd be two years into that. I said, let me try writing a short book. And I wrote a book called dungeon master tips. Uh, and that was, that went fine and people liked it. And then I wrote another one called running epic tier games. That was fine. And then I wrote the lazy dungeon master. Uh, and that was right at the transition from fourth edition to fifth edition. It was during the D&D Next playtest, if you remember that. Yep. And it was the first time I was starting to see like a, 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 the how D&D was changing between this very heavy grid-based tactical combat game to more of the sort of wild and wacky stories that happen when the, the rules are, 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 are lightened up a little bit and, and loosened up a little bit. Right. And the example was during one of the initial playtests, uh, it was at Winter Fantasy, which they're actually having the virtual Winter Fantasies coming up like in three weeks here. Uh, Winter Fantasy oh, wow. happens in February. It happens in Indiana. And back then, I don't remember what the year was, but it was the it, I think it was the first public playtest of um, D&D Next. And I sat down at the table and we're all sitting there looking and the DM comes up and it's Monty Cook. Right. So Monty, Monty Cook of Monty now of Monty Cook Games was one of the advisors for D&D next That's back cool. then. I think he actually left wow. Wizard. He was a, he was a contractor for them. And I think he left as a contractor for them while it was still being developed. But he was running it. And, I, and we were playing uh, Caves of Chaos, which is the Keep of the Borderlands, mm -hmm. the, the major sort of Keep of the Borderlands Story thing. Story arc, right? Yeah. And I remember that everybody was talking about the stories that were happening at the different tables. And it was like, well, in ours, we got killed by an ogre. And in ours, we actually helped get the goblins and kobolds together and had a wedding between the two of them. And, you know, and every story was wildly different. And probably the most interesting ones had nothing to do with killing anything. It was all about how they sort of worked the factions off of one another. And a lot of that happened because the rules were a lot lighter then, you know, and there wasn't this expectation of like, well, there's going to be these hour and a half long fights uh, that you typically saw in, in fourth edition. So, um, yeah, so obviously I transitioned my, my, my writing. I actually have played lots of other RPGs and written about other RPGs, but I, I kind of moved the whole site over to fifth edition when fifth edition came out and uh, wrote back about three years ago. I said, I'm going to go back and, and hit the concepts of the Lazy Dungeon Master again. Uh, I took on a month off from my, my day job. And I just read every book about it I could. I ran tons of polls. I, I talked to, you know, over the period of not just that month, but for a long time, talked to many, many DMs and refined this prep process that I have in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master to try to define a process that is easy to do and helps DMs get the most out of their games by doing as little as they have to. Yeah. And and so that's that's where Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master comes out, and that that Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is probably what I'm most known for. <laughs> uh, but I've written other adventures. I've written other books of adventures, including Fantastic Adventures, Ruins of the Grendel Root. I worked with James Intercasso uh, and Scott Gray, both of whom are. I think we were, we were we were talking on Friday, and we think that Scott Gray's name is in I don't know how many dozens and dozens of hardcover. <laughs> Wizards of the Coast books, but lots and lots of them. He's a you know, longtime editor for Wizards of the Coast. And James Intercasso has got about six different credits and published things. So we all worked together on a book called Fantastic Layers, uh, the digital version of Fantastic Layer. It was kickstarted last year, and the, um, the PDF of it just went out to the backers uh, a couple weeks ago. And now we're working on the print-on-demand copies of that. So that should be, that should be out and available nice. within, within the next month or so. Wonderful. So, um, yeah. So, 
All right, for our next question, if we somehow didn't cover it in that uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> entry there. I have no problem talking about that That's another trait of Sly Flourish. Yeah, that's good, though. What is your most memorable D&D moment? Um, obviously, the one playing with Monty Cook comes to mind, but that's probably, you know, that's probably <laughs> not the, you know, I, I probably, now I need another one, and I already said it. Most, most memorable, most memorable D&D moment. Uh, so in my... In the in the late '80s, uh, I ran a Forgotten Realms campaign where Manshun was the main bad guy. Manshun is an evil wizard that back then was the ruler of the Zinterim. If you're familiar with your yep. Forgotten Realms lore, the Zinterim is now like a now they're like a bunch of gangsters, but back then they were the big bad, right? They were oh, they okay. were like yeah, they were they were the Nazis of of um, <laughs> Forgotten Realms, and Manshun was like the Hitler. So the group had That's been awesome. hunting down Zinterim for a long time and they, they got to Zintel Keep, the capital, you know, like Berlin, and mm. they infiltrated his tower and they're facing off. And I had totally like Monty Hall, the characters, they had every awesome weapon they could. And he's a 20th <laughs> oh, yeah. level wizard and they're, they're, they're beating the hell out of him. And he looks at him and he takes his fully charged staff of the Magi and he breaks it in half. And it blew up the whole tower. It killed. <laughs> oh it, shit! It, I think we rolled that. We we rolled the die to see oh do they God. get teleported to another plane of existence or are they all killed? That is dope. And we we rolled and they went to another plane and they showed up in hell. And the one of them <laughs> fell and hit a tree for some you know tremendous amount of damage. So he got he fell out of the sky and got ripped in half by landing on a tree. <laughs> oh my you know? God! And the and the player was just like <laughs> screaming like wow. <laughs> And yeah, so it was a really like, you know, I think back on it and I'm like, I, I had no idea what I was doing. No, none of us did. But that story sticks with me, you know, practically 30 years later. I think uh, uh, it's just a really fun moment. I think I, that first of all, holy shit. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, that actually segues really good into the, the next question um, that we, we, we really like is we all go through that experience. Cause you got to start somewhere. And I like to think that I'm not the only person in the world that's made mistakes. Um, do you believe that there is a moment where you have failed as a, a, a as a DM or player, maybe even in that situation and, and what were you able to learn and take from it? Sure. So the, my failure as a DM, well, I'm going to, I'm going to hedge. Um, but my, my, there is a, there's an adventure that I ran for my home group. Uh, about probably about a year ago at this time, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. And it was probably the least fun session that we had. Oh no. And yeah, it was really like they were going and I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll explain why. And I'll explain why I actually don't think it was my fault, but that's, that's just like, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> but it gets better. So I don't have a problem admitting mistakes, but I'm pretty sure this wasn't mine. Um, my, my problem was running it the way, the way it was. And uh, it's a it's a death it's essentially a death trap dungeon where you're just facing trap after trap after trap and they're not particularly interesting traps like you find in like White Plume Mountain or even Tomb of Horrors they were just like pit traps and crossbow traps and mm -hmm. stuff like that and meanwhile while they're climbing through this this helly you know this terrible like windy path they're also getting attacked by specters who can fly through the walls 
So the dungeon is really tight and maze-like, and you're getting shot by traps, and specters are coming out and hitting you. And and there wasn't like any good thing in this place. There wasn't anything they they, they didn't really even want to be there that day. You know, like they <laughs> yeah. they really were like, why am I? Why are we going through this thing? And we're just getting <laughs> life drained and shot, and this sucks. And then you'd open a room, and it was a very fourth edition style. Here's your three you know three brutes and two artillery and you fight them and they beat them and then they have to go to the next room and get the next MacGuffin that lets them in the next section and and i remember the funny bit was i actually built it out with a whole tabletop sized dwarven forge setup so it was Holy really shit. really ornate right and and, and we laughed because one of my friends yeah and expensive and one of my friends uh always complains that when he doesn't show up that's the night i pull out all the dwarven forge stuff right <laughs> And he couldn't be there that night. So I took a picture of three of my friends looking, my wife and two of my friends, looking at the Dwarven Forge thing, going like with their hands on their heads, like this is the best thing they've ever seen, right? And they're like pointing at it and like gesturing. And I took that picture so I could send it to him oh, to grief him for the fact that he couldn't be there. And the reality was it was the worst game I had run in years. And the Dwarven Forge didn't matter at all. It did not help at all because yeah. it's like it was so lame. So then the real mistake is I then ran the same adventure again for my other group that I have on Sundays. And it sucked just as bad there <laughs> as it did the time I ran it. And at that point, I said, okay, it's not me. It's this adventure. This adventure sucks, right? And now I use it as like a, an example of like, what does a bad adventure look like? And what is a bad dungeon? In particular, what is a bad map? and dungeon right. look like and 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 it comes from a, an adventure and anybody who's heard me talk about this i talk about mm -hmm. it all the time it comes from isle of the abbey in ghost of salt marsh okay. so ghost of salt marsh has eight adventures in it and and they're most of them are awesome that one if you look at the map the map is just a poorly designed map like in many many ways you know it has like a one has one like it's if you're familiar with the idea of uh jayquaying the dungeon you, mm -hmm. you, you ever hear this term of jayquaying the dungeon yeah janelle janelle jayquay oh, yeah. or janelle jayquay is a designer for for uh, tournament adventures back in the 80s uh and she oh. she has this model for dungeon design that's really really good this one was like the opposite of that. This one, it's like there's one entrance. It only goes into one room. That room has 10 rooms with doorways right next to it, which means if you do anything in that one room, all of the other doors are going to open. All the guys are going to pour out. And you're going to have to fight them all, right? Which is just no one wants to run that. And then if you look at the dungeon itself, it's this like wind, single windy path that like arcs around and it's just filled with traps. It's terrible. So my biggest mistake was not just running it, and right. not really modifying it, but also running it running again it to again. confirm that it stuck. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and then proving that it did in fact suck. I do think you had to affirm it. <laughs> right. I do think yeah, that's right. cool because there are, I mean, everyone always wants to blame the dungeon master, but there are sometimes there's cases where things are just designed poorly. I still um, I still blame the dungeon master. <laughs> okay. You know, that is true. But like the thing that it taught me is like, can you now look at it and recognize a badly designed adventure and recognize it early so that you can then tweak it to make it good right right yeah and there were parts of that adventure that i also still hated and i did tweak them and made it better so but it but that probably that death trap dungeon was not one of them that was that was a mistake <laughs> wonderful i definitely have a few dungeons i i had to run for adventure league here and there i'm like they want to do what where when yeah right i think i've written one of those yeah i have i have an adventure out there that is not well loved and and you know gets its fair bit of complaints so i'm with you. <laughs> well luckily that's not the one we're here to <laughs> no, talk probably about right well yeah. no what are we here to but talk you know about what? we are here to talk about though is your lazy dungeon masters book what can you tell us about it and who is it for so uh, yes yeah, so i have two books the original lazy dungeon master book and return of the lazy dungeon master and both of them have the same 
goal, which is helping DMs uh, get the most out of their game prep uh, and, and by doing less, you know, get the most out of their game by doing as, as little prep as they possibly can. And it's not a, uh, it's not zero. Like you can't, you can't not do any, well, I mean, some do, there are some people who say <laughs> I never prep anything and I sit down and I just roll with it and it's great. And my players love it. And you're like, great. You know, like you're the one, yeah, yeah, but, you know, you're like but a lot of us need some point zero one percent. And actually I've done, I've done polls to see exactly how many people are doing that. And it is very low. Um, yeah. but the, I can't imagine it. yeah, right. You're right. I mean, it's happened. I've done it. Like every so often we find ourselves in a situation where like, I'm going to run a game and I, I, you know, I, that turns out like I can't run the game. I thought I was going to run. Now I got to run this without any prep at all. Generally <laughs> yeah. speaking, it seems like people need to do it. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it today. And like, one of the major things is like, it's not about having the perfect system. It's about having a system that works well enough that you can trust it. And that once you've done it, you feel good enough, you feel good to run the game. It's almost all about, do you feel confident in running the game? Because the game goes whatever direction it's going to go anyway. So it's just about, oh, yeah. do I have enough yeah. stuff that I feel good going in? And then I'll roll with it while the game is happening. And so so both books kind of focus on a, a heavy improv, you know, a heavy, a heavy improv style. Uh, both of them kind of say, these are the things that you, you want to have on hand. So when the game goes in weird directions, you're ready to fill them out. Uh, the first book had sort of three major steps. I can't even I can't even tell you exactly what they are, um, but it sort of it was a, I, like can you can you can you do your whole game on like three index cards? And I think it even has a chapter on five minute prep, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's really hard to prep in five minutes. But thirty <laughs> minutes, you know, I've I've definitely prepped games in thirty minutes and not had trouble. And I've talked to many people who have prepped games in thirty minutes and not had trouble. Um, generally, you're not prepping for 30 minutes. If you're also setting up a giant map inside roll 20, you know, that's going to take you <laughs> yeah. a bit longer than 30 minutes, but it's if you're able minute, to, yeah. yeah, if you're going to improv a game and you don't have to worry too much about maps and minis and layout and setup and everything like that, you can, you know, I think I've, I've seen people, you know, more than just me who are able to kind of go through the steps and be ready to roll a game in, in, in 30 minutes. Um, and yeah, so, so both are kind of focused on that, but the second book has, a more refined set of eight steps that you can follow to, to sort of prep your game. And you don't have to have all, you don't have to use all eight steps. There are definitely times where some of the steps are already done for you. Like if you're running a published module, you might only need three steps, you know, because the right, published right. module is taken care of. It's got monsters and treasure and locations already set. And so you don't have to do those three. Um, but yeah, so, and, and that has proven to be pretty useful. And one thing I do is every, every Sunday, I did it earlier today, uh, I do a YouTube video where I go through the steps and I prep my own game and everybody can see like, what does it look like to actually do it? That's like, that's why I did the series. And people that's are really like, you know, cool. it's, it's great that you wrote a book, but what does it actually look like? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> okay, let me show you. Right. And now I've done 200. You know, I don't know if I've done 200 of those, but I've done a lot of them, more than a hundred videos. And um, yeah, where people can then go and see it and it bore the hell out of people, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, in your book, you actually discuss, you have a quote uh, from Robin D. Laws. How yeah. little can I possibly prepare and still have a satisfying and interesting game? Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the quote and the five-minute adventure preparation? Yeah. I guess you kind of did already. But. Yeah, but I can dive into that a little more. So, um, the yeah, like I've, and that that quote, I think you, if in return, there are similar quotes from others, like uh, J Jeremy Crawford kind of said the same thing. Chris Perkins has said the same thing. A lot of popular DMs. Uh, say, you know, have talked about the fact that like, you know, in, in some, in that, that there's, it's not just a matter of like saving time. My original hypothesis going in with both of these books was how can we just spend a little less time and still get a good impact for our game? 
But mm-hmm. in other cases, talking to a lot of people, a lot of surveys, they said their games got better. Yeah. That it wasn't just a matter of being able to keep up with the same level of game that you were typically running. Uh, it was actually that when they prepped, when they prepped less, their game got better. And I it's agree. because they had to improv more, and it's because the the game could shift in different directions, and 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 DMs were were more prepared for it. So uh, I I kind of doubled down on that hypothesis in return a lot, and said like it's not just a matter of being able to do less work. It's about that the the less work you do, the better it is to a point, right? And that's right. that to a point is the important part because there's still stuff you have to do. Yeah, and th- the book talks about the stuff you need to do. I think that's um, um, one of the or big, some stuff, yeah. The big things that separates so many different dungeon masters trying to learn is not everyone needs the exact same amount of time invested in a game to get a specific result. <laughs> For me, right. when I was doing 4th edition, I did spend all the time doing all the elaborate maps and yeah, all too. the elaborate right. planning. And I would get fru- I found myself getting frustrated when yep. they would go a different direction. Oh, yeah. And I ended up getting to the point where I tried to pigeonhole my, my players, which frustrated them because I was forcing them to go a direction. Yep. And frustrated me because I was forcing them to go a direction. And yep. so uh, I finally realized that I don't when I prepare less in the case of the, the five minute uh, prep that I'm personally more free within allowing with the decisions that the players wanted to make. And because of that, that was more fun for them because I, I wasn't getting upset that I was forced. They were going a different direction. I, I've told on the show many times about how there's a pillar of smoke going in one direction and the bastards went another one and how angry I was. But ever since then it's been okay. They want to do what they want to do. So if I just put some bullet points of what's going to happen and or what I think is going to happen, that's less stressful if it doesn't happen. Right. Um, and I think yeah. that's something I've learned a lot going through uh, through your books, too. Yeah. Yeah. A common a common metaphor that I use these days is it's like it's the difference between having a fully cooked and fully prepared meal delivered to the table and going to a hibachi grill where they bring all of the food out in little dishes and they're cooking it in front of you and they're flipping it around and they're flicking shrimps at you, you know, and it's like it's a big show. And it's like if if what we prep isn't the fully baked meal, but instead all the components that we're going to need to be ready to do it at the game, yep. uh, then we, the game can steer back and forth. And, and probably the best example I have of this is, is one of the cha- one of the steps is called Secrets and Clues. Uh, it was actually something I dug out of the Dark Souls games. Like I, 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 I picked it up from Bloodborne. Uh, if okay. anybody's familiar with Bloodborne, that yeah. in Bloodborne, you'll, you'll pick oh, yeah. up an item in Bloodborne and it has a one-line story attached to it. And it yep. teaches you just one, one thing about the lore. And you're like, I don't know what the hell's going on in this game. <laughs> But I'm slowly piecing at least parts of it together by picking up these items and learning Mm -hmm. about these scriptures. Yeah. And so I love that. And I was like, you know, I started doing this. I started like, you know, keeping track of that. And I was like, you know, this actually works better if I don't associate those clues to any particular object or NPC or location. And I just keep a list of clues. And then when they come up, I throw them in, right? And right. and so that that ended up being a, a section of the book that I think is probably the most powerful one. It's the one chapter, it's the one piece that wasn't in the original Lazy Dungeon Master that I felt was so important that I wanted to write another book to have that in it. <laughs> it really and, uh, took it to another level there. Yeah, and it turned out that that was that was that was pretty helpful. Uh, and and you know I was glad I made the new book. And uh, but yeah, the idea is like, what's a one line clue that the characters can learn in the next game? And I'm not going to bother to say where. And then I do 10 of them a game. And then throughout the game, they can break down a wall and see a mosaic. And the mosaic can tell them something. And so you 
pick, dole out one of the secrets or they pick up an intelligent sword and the intelligent sword says something or they find a goblin and the goblin tells them something. So you don't know mm -hmm. where they're going to find it, but you've got them ready to go. And it, and it feels magical. It feels yeah, like it player, players are like, wait a minute, I know you just made that up <laughs> and yet you still had like a piece of lore that was really important for us. Like, how did that happen? You know, and you're like, because right. I didn't bother to associate it. And, and I, I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I didn't know where you were going to learn it. I really feel like that <laughs> sort of idea, exactly, spe specifically in the example you just gave, is a great way to uh, expand on the lore and exploration pillars yeah, of the game. Right. Because yep, yep. you have somebody that wants to go actively looking for something, and oh, perception check, you you notice some scribblings. They they go clean it off, and here's this nice chunk of lore that you've already written that place there because that person wanted to go that way. And it feels rewarding to that lore player or that explorer and stuff. And so that's just yeah. such a genius idea. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like I'm not taking credit for it, right? Like, right. I'm sure that this kind of thing has been done before. I, I know DMs have done this kind of thing before. Um, but sometimes it's just nice to, to have to a reminder. Kind of, yeah. It, it, to, to it's sort written of there. It's good for you. <laughs> it's good for you. Well, and I, and I, I'm a firm believer that like return, the, the steps in return are not the end all be all of game prep steps. It's just one that seems to work for a lot of people. And sometimes right. people just need anything they can grab onto. Like DMs are drowning out there. Yeah. And this is one crappy, <laughs> cracked life preserver <laughs> that they can grab onto and not drown in the craziness of our game. And so, oh, man. you know, yeah. I'm happy with that. Um, one thing that really caught my eye was uh, in one of the chapters, uh, you say, keeping the end in sight. You mentioned that there's a, a, a big problem with... Uh, character focused open-ended stories they often yeah. fall apart at the end and yep. even great writers like stephen king and george yeah, R. Stephen, R. King Martin, uh, yeah. stephen king it happened well george R. R. martin didn't even finish it but look, that's a whole other problem <laughs> yeah it's a, that's uh, a different you know that's a different thing <laughs> where you've got yeah. these you've got these um stories that are brilliant and thought-provoking and unpredictable yet often kind of just yep. fall apart at the end. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit uh, about sure. that and why it's important for a lazy? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of really good examples of this, both good and bad. Right. And uh, a, the, the hard part is that like really interesting stories um, happen because when, when we don't know what's going to happen. Right. And it's why game of Thrones was as popular as it is. Like, sure. It's this like hard bark, you know, fantasy adventure with, with naked people in it, but it also, has a story where you're like, wow, they killed the main character off in like halfway <laughs> through the season. Like I thought this was the good guy, right? And he got beheaded. Right. Right? He's in prison to be it. Spoiler, spoiler for Game of Thrones. <laughs> and you know, but at this point. It's been so long. Yeah. yeah. And and they do it again, right? The Red Wedding and all these different places where they, they take these hard left turns in the story. And 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 that's what brings people coming back. And when your D D game goes that way, right? Where if you're a, sort of a, running a character driven you know, a character-driven D&D game where the characters do things and the world reacts to that and then the characters react to that and the world reacts to that. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't right, know what's right. the direction. You know, my main villain in my campaign currently joined a totally different faction and changed the entire course of the campaign. And now the <laughs> villains are different than they would have been if they'd gone another path, right? I had no idea who the final villain was going to be. And, and it's very cool. Um, the problem is, what do you do at the end of that, right? right. So um, Stephen King's The Stand Another spoiler for the stand, so be careful. Um, and he, he talked about this in his book on writing, that he wrote the stand and he was halfway through it and he wrote like 700 pages or 600 pages. And he's mm -hmm. like, I've got like 36 main characters. 
right? Like, what am I going to do with all these? Like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, I already wrote 600 pages, so I'm not going to throw the story away, but it's a mess. And he went out for a walk and he's like out. I'm pretty sure I got the story right. And he's out for a walk and he's like, I'll blow him up. Right? <laughs> and literally halfway through the stand, he blows up the room full of characters and like four of them survive. And those four become the ones that go out through the whole rest of the book, right? Problem solved. <laughs> problem solved. He blew up a bunch of characters. Totally changed yeah. the course of the book. And it made that book really wild because yeah. you're like, oh my God, you know, and these main characters die. Like one of the main characters <laughs> is killed. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, the, we love these left turns. But then you get to the ending of the stand and he's clear. He had no idea what to do. And he's like, <laughs> I don't know. God comes and fixes it. Oh, and you're no. like, why did all these people cross all of America on foot? <laughs> To go there and get captured so that God can literally bring a hand down and touch a nuclear bomb and blow up Las Vegas. Right? Like that's the end of the stand. Right? Uh, and it's, and it's, it's one of those spoiler for the stand, right? But like a thousand pages of that. And that's the end. You're like, well, the, the ride was worth it. Like even though the ending sucked, the ride was worth yeah. it. Yeah. And boy, like you want another bad example. So I'll give a good example. A good example is Breaking Bad, right? If you guys have watched the TV show Breaking Bad. So one of the fun things about the TV show Breaking Bad is that he, Walt, nothing ever goes right for Walt. And he just barely manages to get by, usually by using crazy science for things. So he's mm -hmm. trying to become the best meth creator in the world, right? He wants to be the best gangster in the world, but he's a terrible gangster. But he just <laughs> barely manages to, like, yeah. skate by every time, right? And he just, like, he, yeah, he just manages to, to figure it, to science his way out of all these problems. And then he, and, and, and things are going bad and good and bad and good. And then at the end, it's like his whole life is falling apart, right? Next thing right. you know, he's like in Alaska in a cabin, <laughs> right? And the whole world is looking for him. His brother, you know, he got his brother-in-law killed, you know, his wife, all this terrible stuff. He had to get, you know, he lost all the money he made, right? It's all anywhere. And then they get to the final episode of the series and everything goes right for him. Right. He has a he sticks an M60 in the trunk of a car and sets it up on some kind of automated thing that will shoot. And it only kills the people he needs it to kill. And it doesn't kill any of the people he made, needs to keep around. Right. It's like the perfect, you know, it's the, 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 the you know, the, the, the God in the M60. It just right. hits the people. He it, so everything goes right for him in only that episode. And it was fine <laughs> because you're like, I just want a fulfilling ending. Like, I don't yeah. need. I don't need a left turn at the end, yeah. right? And plus, he was getting shafted the entire time, so it's finally right. something. So finally, something. I, right. There was actually a really good article that said, "I'm pretty sure he died. He froze to death in a car, and that was all his dream <laughs> about it, because nothing ever goes right for him." And I was like, "That's actually a really good I thought. Like that. It's all. It's all like a, his idealistic dream sequence." Right. Then you look at Game of Thrones, the TV show. Yeah, and they decided in the second to last episode to do another hard left turn. And it ruined the whole series, in my opinion. Well, right? Like, it it's took, yeah. generally conceived that, yeah, it and, and ruined. You're right. the whole you, thing. you look at the ratings on IMDb, and it's pretty clear that yeah. they were actually, not well loved. With the Game of Thrones second to last episode, I actually have made the firm argument multiple times. Like, actually, it's not as hard to left turn as you think if you watch the seasons leading up to it. The problem though is the last season though rushed through everything it yeah, it did. nowhere when it really the, wasn't right the hard part though it's not necessarily about what you think might happen but what people want and taking mm -hmm. the strongest female character in the show and turning into a just a psychopath in one move is like the most uh, in my opinion the most misogynistic take on the story you can make <laughs> right oh she's just crazy like come on really we're gonna take the heroine of the show and say oh she's just crazy come yeah, on it's not the 
Could have been a better I didn't know what that though was she was always crazy. You know, we saw, saw the size of it, but she always had people to hold her in check. And by the time we the episode, she held, she held back. She never would just murder a bunch of women and children. She never did that. She saved whole cities. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> yeah, obviously. We need to move on. Scroll past that for now. <laughs> All right. There's so, somebody that's on the last season is like, I hate you guys. You spoil it. That was years ago now. And it besides, ago. yeah, better yeah, off not watching them. You had a whole lot of time to watch that by now. <laughs> anyway, one well, of the main colors for D&D, obviously, is the combat. And yeah. arguably, it's one of the biggest time-consuming aspects of the game. What is your tactic for taking on such a important aspect? So it's interesting. Um, I th- I think that combat has gone down in its importance in D&D with 5th edition over 4th edition. And I've run a couple of polls on this uh, on Facebook and Twitter and gotten more than a thousand, I'm pretty sure more than a thousand replies on this, where people enjoy role-playing twice as much as they enjoy combat, by and large. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not universal (laughs) and it's not, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not important at all. But I think it's interesting that that you know when you ask which of the three pillars do you enjoy the most, I, I you know I ran it a couple of times you know because I was like I'm not sure I stated it right I'm not sure the question is right maybe my audience is wrong I, I actually more than other polls that I've run kind of checked the angles to say like is this is this true is it accurate and it was and both times it came out consistent um, so one thing that I do I you know and I was again like like you guys are talking about like I built big set piece battles you know I've got an army of dwarven forge I got probably a thousand miniatures and I would run these really big elaborate set piece battles. And Mm -hmm. now I run maybe a couple of those per campaign, right? It's rare for me to run the big set piece battles like I did. And instead I bring a list of monsters that I think might be, might, might show up in a scene. I have a list of interesting locations that the characters could explore in the back of my head. I've got a few sort of tips or sort of tools for doing ad hoc situational sort of things like, can you jump up on the wall and get a weird angle on a guy and get advantage on your attack? Or can you, can you push a guy into a big boiling pool of lava stuff? You know, I'll sort of keep these in the back of my head so that I can draw them out. But then I largely improvise the battles and boss fights are different, which is why I wrote, you know, a book with Scott Gray and James Intercasso of 23 boss battles is because boss battles are hard and we want to make it easier by saying here are 23, you can drop into your game. And, you know, so, so they're, they're, they're harder to do and they, they still have a place, but I'd say most battles don't. And, uh, I, you know, I, I had this conversation on, on my, my show earlier today about like the purpose of a battle and some, some believe that the purpose of a battle is to wear down the resources of the characters so that, you know, a boss fight will be hard, for example, I think was what came up. And it's like, I never I never really think of a battle that way. A battle is something that occurred during the story. And I don't know if it's going to be a battle. And I don't right. know if it's not going to be. Now, there's generally cases where, like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a battle. You know? Right. Because you, but, especially and, and then I'll, you know players, right? Yeah. You, you know but there's lots of times where they might, they might get past it some other way. They might go invisible and get past it. They might yeah. negotiate their wear out of it, you know? And I, we were having one today in my, in my, <laughs> my game a few hours ago where they went up against one of the major bosses of the campaign and they're, they're having a big monologue. And he's like, I really want to like convince you so that we don't have to fight. Like, you know, he's <laughs> like, I know you're, I know you're right. You know, and I know you think you're right. And I know what you're doing is for the right reasons. And I think it's for the right reasons. 
but you're also making the most devastating weapon that's ever been made. And I can't let you do that. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, spells are going to fly. Right. I totally, I totally get that. I was never the, um, cause I, I, I played a lot of fourth edition. So combat was kind of in yeah. s- central. So I spent so much yeah. time yeah. designing the, the, the combat and everything. And when I made the transition to fourth or uh, to fifth edition, I started realizing that, um, I, I found my games were better when I spent more time trying to develop the characters and the locations than I did the actual combat encounters. Um, For a while there, I was just using like random encounter generators and stuff because I'm like, oh, I need some gnolls. There's a generator because (laughs) the the amount of time I spent on that was taking away from some of the better aspects of the game. I know when we did our – we finished Storm King's Thunder last year um, (laughs) – (laughs) Um, it was one of the biggest full-on campaigns we had run and there i had a lot of combat but it was so sporat so sparse i would say because the players themselves were less interested in just trying to kill stuff and more interested in Mm -hmm. what why did this break why are the giants running free what can we do to control it and one of the things (laughs) go ahead i was gonna say there's a, a specific scene that i remember uh, when we posed as surprise inspectors. <laughs> yes, that's that's exactly where I was going with that. And um, so for whatever reason, uh, Ian over here, and I, I'm playing uh, a rogue, he's playing a warlock. Yep. Well, he conjures up uh, you know, a clipboard with you know, something to write with. <laughs> and we're like, we can make this work. And we post yeah. health checks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, so we met, go in, <laughs> and of course we meet you know, the, the fire giant's son. We were like, oh, Hey, yeah, <laughs> how's it going? And, uh, well, surprise inspection went by, so you know we tried to talk. Was that the to forge, him, right? The forge. Was that the forge? Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so we're like, hey, <laughs> so surprise, we're inspecting the place, and you know we're trying to be affirmative, you know, because you know we're surprise inspectors. It's like our OSHA. Job. We're like OSHA. We, here. we own yeah, the this, place right this now. Forge is clearly not safe. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> your giant, your giant lava forge is, you know, it's a, not, it's a little, right. little strange here. There's a lot of hazards, and right. of course he's like, it's supposed to be well, I'm just gonna, t- <laughs> I'm gonna go talk to my dad about this. And we're like, oh no, you're not, and <laughs> so Uh-oh. Ian just says banishment, <laughs> and yeah. he banished him, and, and everyone looked around like, that's why I'm the prize inspector. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, oh my god, what do we do? But because that, what made that thing so interesting is is back to the the on point of the the combat mm. avoiding they avoided a bunch of combat right. just right. by oh man because you know the, the ogres are dumb right the ogres are all dumb and stuff so they're like oh this guy's got a clipboard and a pen and thinks he's you know so yeah. that was where i as a, a dm i could say oh they're just gonna kill you but i was like you know what they're big and dumb and do what they're told so how far could it go i let it go a little farther than i probably should have <laughs> that's why you had to banish the guy but um, I think that that's so, you to harken back to what you said earlier. Part of it is it's le- coming less about just the outright combat and more about the story being told and the creativeness of the players. And I think that um, the the your return of the lazy D- uh, dungeon master and the the um, the lazy dungeon master really allow a, a, a person to focus more on those things that, in my opinion, make the game most fun. Um, right. That's the hope, right? Right. It makes yeah. I know it made me, it makes me a better DM because of it. So yeah. thank you for that. Well, 
Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad it's working. I'm always waiting for somebody like you know. I try this; it sucks. Like it totally doesn't work. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Waiting for the one time. Yeah, right. It hasn't. Yeah, you never know. You never know if it's going to turn out. You know, or or I realize like, oh my god, what kind of damage did I do to this game? Like, you know, all these people are doing it wrong. Um, but yeah, there there is this. There is. I think. I think you know both of the things you talk about it kind of hits on an idea I've talked about before, which is called um, you know building situations. That it's not really about building encounter, and, and you can almost kind of stretch the term encounter to mean situation. But mm -hmm. the idea of a situation is like things are happening in a certain place, and you 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 know you have sort of an idea in your head about here's what would happen with this place if the characters didn't go there, and right. now that the characters go there, we're going to have to see how the world reacts to that. And and the example is like if you're if they're going to break into a manor to go steal something, you know what's that manor like, and where are the guards, and who's doing what there, and you know, and, and you kind of describe it to the players, you know, you're talking about Storm King's Thunder. Mm -hmm. So an example is uh, there's that uh, gambling barge, right? In Storm King's Thunder. Mm -hmm. And uh, I forget, it's the one that has like the goose, the goose coins or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I forget what it is, but I um, what you're talking about, though. yeah. And so they knew they had to, they knew there was a villain on the barge that had some item that they needed. I don't remember the details, but they're like, we're going to go and pretend we're going to all pretend to be different people. Like some of us will be gamblers. Some of us will be servants. Some will be guards, but we're all going to get on that boat. And we're all going to try to, our job is to go and steal this thing that we know is down there. And that's in the captain's quarters. So we got to figure out how to get there and get the captain's quarters. So the situation was, we knew that where the boat was, we knew that they were getting on board. We knew that there was a bunch of people gambling on there. And, and, and the players had about 80% of the information they needed in order to run this operation. And about 20% they didn't know about or was going to change. And they're, and they're getting ready and they're halfway through and the barge pulls up and this beautiful woman gets on board in a blue dress and hair. And one of them goes, Oh my God, that's Imrith. And they're like, what? I'm like, they're, cause they knew who the villain was. Right. And they're like, that's an ancient blue dragon who polymorph, who knows us and knows us by sight. And she just came on board the gambling barge to gamble. Right. Like, <laughs> Oh man. Like, and they're all thinking like, this is going to be like a nuclear bomb going off in the center of this thing. Like, you know, and so they all had to like, how do we steal this item? Not run into her. <laughs> you know, and, and not have like this massive fight. And it, it, it was this wonderful shift in the situation. And again, I ran that same scene for two different groups and what both of them were just so much fun, you know, and it was fun on my part because I, I don't know what they're going to do. Right. Right. You know, and, and they're going to come up with creative stuff. These are smart people. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to come up with creative stuff. And all I have to do is make sure that the world reacts you know, appropriately yeah. for, for what's going on, whether it's combat or whether it's exploration or whether it's role-playing, whatever the pillars are, I don't know. And, and that's, that's the real joy that, that, that idea, I get, you know, and, uh, they, they kind of talk about it in the game dungeon world to like play to mm. see what happens. Mm, you know, right, we don't, right. we don't define what happens ahead of time. We play to see we're, we're there sitting <laughs> at the table because we want to see what happens. Right. Cool. So I guess finally this <laughs> kind of got a lot more out of that than I was expecting. But oh, aside yeah. from the amazing Dungeon Master advice, you've tossed in some fantastic inspiration in the form of the Lazy Dungeon Master Toolkit. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about it and what its contents are? Sure. Uh, I have my copy right here. I, you know, oh, no, that's the wrong book. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was there. But, you know. We got um, it. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a that was kind of a not not a fluke exactly, but it was a really nice sort of lucky lucky happenstance that um i did the kickstarter for return mm -hmm. and i had no idea if it was going to be popular like the lazy dungeon master was selling and and i was actually really worried about breaking that i was like i'm really you know the, the sales on it are pretty consistent and um why would i write another book if I, the old one's still doing well 
right? But I was right. like, yeah, but I got these things that I want to talk about that aren't in it. And so I'm like, and, and I hadn't, I, I had already done a couple of Kickstarters, but I hadn't done the Kickstarter for the original Lazy Dungeon Master. So I, I knew that it sold, but I wasn't sure how popular this other one's going to be. Right, right. So I said, like, it might be like a, you know, uh, a trade paperback, black and white book with probably no art. But if I get enough money, maybe I'll add a little bit of art or I'll, you know, I can expand it. So I had a pretty good idea of like how to how I was going to expand it out. I'd already written it. It was just a matter of what the formatting was going to be like. Right. And the Kickstarter yeah. did really, really well and way better than I thought it was going to do. And so the stretch goal was going to be like these one page supplements that are are, for, are are fifth edition specific. So where return is not really specific to fifth edition D and D the workbook would be, and it would have all, it was essentially like, what are all the things that y- you know, you would typically like have on a DM screen or what, how would you expand the DM screen to have all the things you need at the table to be able to improvise your game? So it's heavily focused on, on a lot of random tables uh, but random tables for like, can I generate a single use magic item that has one spell that you can use before it's ex- exhausted, right. right? Sort of like a spell scroll, but it's an item. Uh, can you do monuments that have some kind of interesting power and you can roll like three different you know levels to sort of get the monuments? And the idea is like, in a lot of cases, it combines like three 1D20 tables with a D100 table. And when you have a combination of tables like that, they, they, they multiply one another, which means you have you know, hundreds of thousands <laughs> to maybe even millions of potential options. As yeah, you quite and you can have, point. yeah, you can have millions of options on a single page without a computer. Right. right? And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's, I, I like that idea a lot. So I have a lot of those in there. Uh, and then the last thing I did, I, I wrote a book, I don't know, years ago called Fantastic Locations, which was the idea of uh, 20 locations that you could drop into a game that didn't have monsters or stories tied to them already. It was just like, okay. if you wanted to have a, a crazy old theater, here's a crazy old theater and then you can sort of drop in people. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you wanted to have like you can a, just fill it in in there, you can sort of fill it in. So that, that was the idea. Um, it wasn't terribly popular. It, it, it was okay. But you know, I think the biggest problem I had is it didn't have maps because I wanted to keep it flexible and you can't right, be flexible right. and also have a map, but I think people want a maps. So uh, <laughs> in, in the, in the ZDM workbook again, because the Kickstarter did so well, one of the things we added in was something called, uh, uh, mundane, Sly Flourish's mundane locations, which were like non-fantastic locations, sort of the most common locations that you might have in a D&D game. Uh, and there are 10 of those. So it's like caves and mines and, a, you know, a, a docks and a castle. It's all like very, very sort of straightforward places. Right, right. Yeah. But now they have maps, right? So I got maps from a few different cartographers and I wrote descriptions. So the idea is like, if you need a place to run a game, you can pull out the back of that book and probably the place you need is in there and you can run it right out of the book and not need anything. So yeah, the, the whole goal of that book is to, um, to, to really just make it easier for DMs to be able to improvise their game, you know, beyond right. even just the prep that you're doing. And, and, that, and it turned out that is the second most popular book I've ever written. Like return is the most popular. <laughs> and that book outsells the original lazy dungeon master by a lot. So people really it's dig crazy. it. Part of it. It's cheap and it has a focus and, and people really dig it. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it ended up being a really, you know, a, a really valuable book. And I'm, and it's all because it was the reward for a kick. It was the stretch goal for a Kickstarter. So it wasn't, I, I hadn't really planned on it. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, wow. But I use it all the time. Of course. <laughs> One would hope, right. That I use my own book. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I use it and I, I like it a lot. Um, there you go. 
before we finish up with our main topic today, um, I have one last thing. I really, uh, really spiked my interest in your return of the lazy dungeon master. Uh, you talk about conducting GM brain exercises. Can yeah. you, for those listening, can, what kind of exercises are we talking about? Sure. Um, there's a whole, whole bunch and I don't remember what I said in the original lazy dungeon master. <laughs> I do now. Um, most of it is just like bathing yourself in fiction. Right. Um, there's a lot of it is just you, you got to sort of build up your 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 big back database full of just stuff. And it's watching movies that you love and watching TV shows. I talk about like, you know, try to watch good ones, you know, like try not to, you know, there, it's there's something like Tiger King. Probably not. So go find. I don't know. This probably probably make a great NPC. So maybe. Yeah. So but just trying to, you know. Fill your mind with fantasy and science fiction and all the stuff, all the tropes and all the stuff that we would want to 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 to, yeah. to run in our game. Um, and then a lot of it is like when you're when you're bored, when you're stuck in line, or you're at a meeting, or stuck in traffic, you know, and you and you need something like you know, think about what your villain is doing. <laughs> so instead of saying instead of saying like what story am I going to run or where's my game going to go, say like what's my villain up to right now. Right. Like if I have a villain, like what's 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 she doing right now before the characters? And what that ends up doing is it it drives the story in a you're you're in the story while you're thinking that way. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna drive the direction of the story as um as as the momentum from the characters rather than a plot that you wanted. Right. So instead of saying, like, I really want this to happen, you 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 kind of say, like, well, what what's you know, yeah, what are the what's what's this sidekick? You know, the minion sends a sidekick out to go do a thing. You know, where are they going? What are they doing? So that's like an example brain exercise. Yeah. Uh, I'm a real big fan of like listing 10 things. So instead of trying to come up with great big elaborate stuff, say like, what are 10 interesting locations the characters might run into? You know, like what are what are 10? If I've got this general area where they are, if I, so my, my characters are stuck in the Mornland in Eberron, you know, right. what are 10 interesting places they might run into in Eberron? Or into the in the Mornland, you know, and you sort of write down a list, and and it doesn't have to be filled out, and you don't have to have a lot, but it's just enough to kind of push your brain past the first three easy ones, and past the mm. next five hard ones, and now you you know you're really like those last couple of ones are really hard to yeah. to come up with, and that's where your brain really goes far. I'm a I'm a really so those big, are examples. I'm a really big fan of lists because like yeah. uh, if I'm gonna have my players, they gotta get on a, a stupid Mariner boat to go, you know across the bay or whatever I, i'll make a short list of 10 things that they would find on the boat why yeah, perfect i don't know yep. i'm just like there's there's a there's a there's an anchor on the side there's right. some half-eaten sandwich yeah. or something like that just so yeah. i find perfect. my brain yeah. comes up with some weird things but if somebody asks i then got like oh there's something. this That's or right. even if yeah. i don't have the list i remember some of that stuff so yep um, I'm, I'm really fan, a big fan of lists, no matter what it is. Like, uh, you know, what did, um, if they kill a skeleton, what kind of, you know, things is it going to drop? That's not related to its a weapon, you know, maybe it was an old pirate. So it drops an eye patch or something stupid like that, you know, right, um, right. something to, uh, kind of reveal that, uh, reveal a little bit of that lore story about it. That's not really, it's only going to care if you want to care about the lore. Um, right. it always feels like it adds it to, at least to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. So there's, I think there's lots of things that DMs can do to to sort of keep their brain constantly chewing around this stuff. Yeah. But those are, I think those are, those are probably good ones. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we've talked about this amazing product. Um, talked about you a lot. 
where where can they swing by and grab this thing? I mean, or either, e- easiest, either of them. Yeah, easiest place. Well, so the book is available on Drive Through RPG and Amazon. Um, it's also available on my website at slyflourish.com. Uh, probably, you know, best place to get a hold of anything that I've done is to go to Sly Flourish. Yep. Uh, I recently redid the whole homepage so that like basically everything I'm doing is there in one link or another problem. There's 80 links on the homepage, but yeah. you know, you can, yeah, there's, there's all, all, all the stuff is there, including all, all of my books and including return. Yeah. Then definitely, uh, they can find you on, uh, social media too, right? Yeah. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and I'm on all, all the things, right? I'm, <laughs> I've got a, I've got my, a couple of shows that I do on Twitch and I've got my YouTube channel, um, and I've got Twitter, and I don't know, probably a handful of other things, Discord, right. and Patreon, and things like that. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, make sure you guys all go check them out. Before we continue into the next segment, uh, we would like to take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by your general sponsor, Mobile Press, and their product, Grimoire 2. Within these dusty pages, uncover the secrets of the world, indeed of the branches of the multiverse. Collected here are an entire lost volumes of esoteric truths, only for you, the Warlock Grimoire too. Dark revelations and wondrous testimonials of dark fantasy monsters and magic, locales and lore of Midgard. The Warlock Grim War 2 presents the content from the issues 10 through 19 of the Warlock Zion and includes an entire issue's worth of new, never-before-seen lore and game elements, including both the mysteriously desolated Southland city of Irem and the secrets of Grandmother herself, Baba Yaga. Uncover the truths of dark fantasy for the Midyard campaign setting or for the worlds of your own creation. And now, what you've all been waiting for. Our Unearthed Tips and Tricks segment, where we bring you new and reusable material for both players and DMs. Uh, Our character concept today is a ghostly bargain. This was submitted by our patron, Charles Koontz. Him that pops up often. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, A good scrap gets him a little excited. Your character was just a normal person, such as a farmer or a merchant or some other mundane calling. Stumbling into a graveyard, burial chamber, or some other potential residence of spirits or all things ghostly, your character is overcome with fear after meeting an honorable warrior spirit who seeks retribution for a betrayal uh, during their life, which leads to remorse and regret tying tying them to the mortal realm. You were promised that in exchange for allowing the spirit to possess you to finish uh, delivering their retribution, you will be granted its service, skills, and powers. What do you guys think about this character concept? It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, for me. I don't want to do it. Okay. <laughs> I was kind of reminded of, uh, and I don't know if it's just because I just saw the tra- the the new trailer for the new Shaman King, but where I, I envision this being like some sort of maybe like a warlock or a, a, a like a hexblade or something, where your your power is coming from an outside source, but now you've kind of created this what could also be uh, almost like a dual personality. Um, I think could be a little bit of fun. What do you think, uh, Mike? It's interesting. Like, I guess a question I have is, can that fit into a, is it, was this an NPC or is this a character? Um, the idea for our character concepts can be either a player or an NPC. 
What do you think it is in this circumstance? Um, probably uh, a flavor of character, a player character, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it might actually be pretty interesting as an NPC background, right? If you if you sort of run into this character at different points during this transformation. Oh, that would be cool. Um, yeah, it would it would be interesting. The problem if you make it a character is, well, there's four other characters. What are they doing while all of this is going on? You're right. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine this would be more of like a backstory probably leading up yeah, to the character. Be. So now sure. the characters meet at level one. He's a, let's, say a, let's say he's becoming a Hexblade Warlock, right? I was going to say, this, this fits perfectly well for Warlocks. <laughs> yeah, I would agree because you're getting your power from somewhere else. So when right. they meet him, maybe he's already undergone that transformation. Right, um, right. And occasionally the other aspect, personality the normal guy slips out occasionally. Um, so it seems like a, a really interesting potential warlock build for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, I think the biggest question is, is this something that would just be kept to the, for the DM and the player to know and not shared with the other people? Do they know that his power comes from ghostly origins? Right. It's, an, it's interesting. Cool. That'll do it for our character concept. Our monster today is brought to you by, the legendary Sly Flourish. So what do you have for us today, boss? I'm going to cheat and talk not so much about a single monster variant, but as the templates for reskinning monsters. So one of the most, in my, in my opinion, one of, the, one of the best tools that a DM has available to them is the ability to reskin a monster. And the concept behind reskinning, if you're not familiar with it, is you, you take a monster that exists like in the monster manual now, and you just call it something different, or you describe it differently, or you make very small and subtle tweaks to it uh, to have it fit in a different role. And so my, my favorite monsters, we were talking about Storm King's Thunder before, my, my favorite monsters to reskin are giants. Um, you could also include like an ogre. If you, if you want lower challenge rating ones, you can get down to ogres and maybe even like an orc or something like that. But the nice thing about the giant stat, stat block is that it is very, very straightforward and simple yet has a wide range of of challenges so like a hill giant let's take a look at the hill giant right um oh you mean like challenge ratings yeah it's challenge rating varies significantly so a a a hill giant is challenge rating five it's pretty high right Mm -hmm. uh but a storm giant is challenge rating i don't know a lot uh, thir- a 13 right that's yeah. a technical and, rating a lot but it's a, it's a strong 13 yeah. because it attacks twice plus 14 to hit for 30 damage a hit so it's a yeah. 60 damage hit and it has lightning strike and all these other things so <laughs> what's what's neat about about giants is because the stat even the storm giant which is one of the most complicated storm giants and cloud giants are pretty complicated but even there they are way smaller than like typical challenge 13 monsters mm-hmm. and which makes them really good to reskin. You can you can just call it something different, right? And uh, y- you know you can like I've used fire giants before. I had I had like a a barbarian king, and I wanted a really strong barbarian king, and I just made a fire giant and said it's a barbarian king. And I that's awesome. Its, it's size was normal, but boy, it hit like a freight train. And right. people are like, oh, <laughs> you know, like this barbarian king is slamming on me with his sword. He's doing like forty damage, you know. That you actually yeah. bring up a great point there because when you fight a giant, because they're huge, you know what the players kind of have an expectation. Right. But right. like Ant-Man, if you take all that size and shrink <laughs> it into a small shape, they're not yeah. going to expect that 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 pain that's going to come from it. And if you think about it, like if you're going to take an NPC and suddenly turn them into a giant, well, they can drink a potion of 
fire mm-hmm. giant strength, right? And it's like nice. you could have them sort of throw a bottle to the side and then hit you for <laughs> 28 damage a hit. And they're like, what's that? It's like fire giant strength. Like, oh my God. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So so being able to take these this range of 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 challenge ratings, you know, anything from mm-hmm. a CR five for a hill giant up to a CR 13 for a storm giant. And keeping those like in your in your back pocket. Yeah. Um, we were talking about improvising during the game. When you need monsters that are of that level and you want to reskin something, particularly any kind of humanoid, you can generally yeah. take the giant stat blocks and the ogre stat block is another really good one. Yeah. Um, and, and you can sort of transform them into uh, anything you want. And you can also <laughs> enhance that, that, that variation by changing their weapon damage type or maybe yep. they do a different element. Instead of the, yep. being a fire giant, it's a necrotic giant element. Right. <laughs> Something as simple as that can really give it oh a... a yeah, the storm, giant, the storm giant works well for that too because like you could take that lightning and turn it into anything. And suddenly, if you're getting hit for 54 acid damage from the, you know, the acid lord, you know, the I love it, the acid queen, you're like what? pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Melt your face, so, kind of. Yeah. Me so I, I just, I, I really that that to me is 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 you know when we talk about that, prepare to improvise, reskinning and knowing which stat blocks reskin well. Yeah. Um, is a really it's just such a handy tool. And and you're you're preaching to the choir. Every episode, our monster variants that I make are always a stat blot that exists with some yeah, slight with changes. And yep. it totally yep. can give it a whole new feel. So I got mm-hmm. it. I love yeah, it. Really powerful. All right. Yeah, it's really good. I think that'll do it for our monster variant. Messing with giants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dork with giants. Right. <laughs> Cool. So our encounter of the podcast is the Void Maiden. So while the characters are wandering through a dungeon, they come across a particularly strange-looking upright Iron Maiden. A woman with a horrified and tormented look casted upon its front. From the inside the coffin, they can hear the screams of someone, or something, begging to be released. Outside the coffin is an impression of a handprint surrounded by runes on its front. With a successful DC 18 Intelligence Arcana check, a character can identify the runes as material components for a teleportation circle. If the character succeeds the check by five or higher, they're able to decipher variant markings distorting the spell, making it a one-way trip. If a character places their hand on the handprint impression, the character is zapped away with magic and swaps places with the person inside the Iron Maiden. While inside, the creature requires no food or water to live. Standing in their place is an elderly pale elf named Delsaron Thielen. Uh, he has been locked in the Iron Maiden's total darkness for 312 years. Oh no! Uh, his band of adventurers had entered the dungeon previously, stumbled upon into this trap. None of his allies could find a way to free him, and none were willing to trade places with him. <laughs> uh, the magic of the Iron Maiden is treated as a ninth level for purposes of dispel magic or other similar effects. So, and stupidly <laughs> strong. <laughs> Get the uh, break. What do you think about this, Mike? I I can't believe it's not a vampire. Oh! I was kind of wondering. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> like, damn, I missed out I, on I, that. I, I had I had one like this where four sarcophagi with these like husks inside that are still alive and they're begging for help and the players like that's creepy and they look and like one of them has fangs and like nope like nope you're staying in the car we're out like don't look at them don't look at them right like they're gonna charm you oh my gosh and so yeah that idea like right out of interview with a vampire right right vampires trapped in iron maidens that are stuck there for hundreds of years so totally didn't even I don't know why I thought didn't think about that I uh. I really like this uh, encounter because 
the players could choose. I mean, if they're evil, they're probably gonna be like, eh, F it. But the thing about this character is it can be a good character. It's an adventure who just got stuck in this thing and yeah. they can help him. They put their hand up, poof, they change places. Now he's free. He's certainly not going to want to go back. So now somebody's stuck in there or they can choose to bypass it entirely and ignore the pleas and cries. And I really like choices like that. I mean, so what is the solution? I mean, obviously, this short little description doesn't include all possible solutions, aside from it can be dispelled and removed. I mean, maybe a Goliath will just pick up the thing and carry it with them the rest of the time. Who knows? But I was going to say, yeah. Um, I really like encounters like this. It's not a direct combat encounter, but I think it could uh, be a lot of fun uh, in any dungeon, really. Um, so is yeah, there you any- can kind of just throw this anywhere. What are some other ways that we could uh, make this a little bit more uh, intriguing? You guys got any ideas? Morality could be really interesting for something that's been away that long. Yeah. Is it good? Is it bad? Does it have a semblance of the understanding of good and bad? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) mean, if if it's it's been in there for 312 years. That's a long time. That's a really long time. Technology is probably totally different now. (laughs) But it's still an elf. So, I mean, that's a normal time. But I like the the way uh, Mike's thinking. What if it... The person isn't just, maybe he's kind of, you know, cuckoo, you know, because he's been mm. locked in blackness for 312 years. He comes out, he's all stark white and, and, uh, I mean, it would be, may as well be a interesting. <laughs> well, like I said, yeah, I mean, might be right, but I think it's an interesting moral, uh, moral thing for the players. Our match item today is the L touched amulet. It is a wondrous rare item and the attunement is required to be done by a tiefling. It's shaped in the, le- in the likeness of a devil, adorned with infernal etchings. This monstrous amulet is a boon to those with a hellish blood. Just a tiefling, in many cases. The amulet has uh, three charges and regains 1d3 ex- expended charges daily at dawn. While you're attuned to this amulet, your blood warms with, with this infernal power. Spells that use your infernal legacy have their saving throw increased by one. DC, that is. Additionally, if an enemy damages you with an attack within 60 feet of you, use your reaction to expend one charge to cast Hellish Rebuke at its lowest level. I think a magic item that boosts up a racial ability is always a win in my opinion, and this definitely doesn't. Yeah, um, I agree. I really liked it because there's nothing worse than running out of spell slots and then not being able to <laughs> nuke somebody. Like yeah. that's that's kind of the supposed to be the the tiefling's kind of whole shtick, I think. So, what do you think, uh, Mike? You're yeah, it looks cool to me. Stuff. No, well, no, not in magic items. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it looks it looks like a fun one to me. Uh, I like the idea of just being able to use something that you you clearly picked, like this race or this yeah, class, right. or it's, and it's being able to use up it a more. Thing that you did, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I and I, I mean, anybody that asks, I always like the things that are specific to, because anybody can give you a flaming sword and anybody can use it, but when a hell touched amulet drops, everyone know who is it for, who's it's for, who yeah. it is mm-hmm. for, um, and more importantly, it makes the 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 player feel like their choice and race mattered a little more. Um, and to me, that's something that is always really fun. So, all right, that'll do it for our magic item. Uh, Mike, would you like to tell us about our dungeon master tip today? Mr. Lazy DM. 
Sure, I'm I'm totally gonna riff away from what we talked about before and what we've do. got what we've got down here. <laughs> I want to talk about maps. Okay. Um, so uh maps maps are really, you know, we 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 obviously are kind of swimming in maps in all of our games. Mm -hmm. Uh but how how to use them and and as I've always looking, what's the easiest way to really use maps? And I've been I don't know about you guys, but I've been playing all of my games online recently, mm -hmm. you know, in the last nine months or so. And I was kind of in love with Dyson Logos maps before. You guys familiar with Dyson Logos? Hell yeah. Maps? Yeah. So Dyson Logo, if you go to DysonLogo.blog, I think it is. Uh, DysonLogos.blog, and you click on maps, you get more than 900 maps that are free and available to use for your D&D game. They're not all commercially usable, um, but they are certainly usable in your home game. And my my thought is like, if you ever thought, you know, I need to sit down and draw a map, the answer is probably you don't, because mm -hmm. Dyson's probably got a better one available to you right now, for just about any situation you need, right? Yeah, he's got hundreds. I of needed them. a multi-story ziggurat, and guess what I found? A multi-story ziggurat, right? So, uh, whenever you are are looking at a location, an, an easy way to do it is go to go to DysonLogos.blog, go to maps. And just start looking through them. And as soon as you find a map that is suitable enough, just copy it, save it, stick it wherever you're, you know, wherever you keep your maps. And uh, uh, something that I was considering, I've been, I've been doing for a while and kind of considering today is like labeling the maps. And I, I've been kind of messing around with image editors and things like that to drop labels on a map of like what each room is going to be. Because the Dyson maps are blank, right? They don't have, right, they right. don't have any annotations. So, uh, right. and what I realized I was, I was doing on my show today is like, you know, I could just make a list of the rooms. I don't need to actually say which room is which part of the map because I'm looking at the map while I'm writing them down. Right. And and I, I know in my head. So it, it it hits this idea of like when you're when you're when you're doing your preparation, don't do it like you're gonna sell it on the DMs guild, right? Like you only need it for you. Like right. you're the only one that's ever gonna look at it. And if you know that this room label is in that room you're good you don't have to annotate the map right and right. and it, it just means like you know if you need to fill out I, I did it on the show and it's like if i need 14 rooms and i need to fill them out i could do it in about five minutes because like i know that's the guard quarters that's a guard barracks those are the guard robes that's uh you know uh, that's where they bathe you know that's that's you know that's the room of statues and then you can kind of add your fantastic -y bits like that's a statue of sora kel the the original leader of the Droam and the revered sort of godlike, you know, entity that the daughters of Sorokal worship. So you can sort of add your little tips and stuff in there. But you don't have to go through like the painful process of adding labels unless you've got a system. I have friends that do everything in Roll20 and they will use the Roll20 labels and it's really easy for them. If it's easy and fast for you, go with the gods. Oh, for sure. But if it's not, just write them, just write them in a list and you'll be fine. Love so. me some lists. Yeah, li <laughs> lists are great. And, and this is just another way. Use the map to inspire your own your own list of what interesting locations the characters could run into when they're exploring these places. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to have to good go old maps, man. Write that maps. Out, that's good. <laughs> Here's a DM tip from 40 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, use um, maps. I really like that idea. There was recently a product release. I saw a Kickstarter for that did that where, um, when I don't know if it was Alan soccer, I, I don't know who it was, but somebody had a Kickstarter that basically said, Hey, we're going to run this thing. We're going to take all these fantastic maps provided by Dyson Logos, and they're going to write adventures based on the, the visual of the mm -hmm. map. And I think yep. that they're so in, they can be so inspiring. So Yeah, Cobalt, Cobalt Press does this with the Warlock layers. Yep. 
Um, yep. So your, your sponsor, right? Cobalt Press is a yes. sponsor. Yes, sir. Yeah, yes. Wolfgang Bauer and Cobalt Press. Oh man. So they, awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, the Warlock layers, uh, Warlock layers all use Dyson logo, commercial, commercially usable maps, and then you build your adventure around it. Uh, right. One of the ones for Cobalt Press uh, is um, uh, Apex Emojian. Um, I forget the full name, Legacy of Apex Emojian. Uh, and that was one I did where they had a map and, and you know, we, we were given a map. I was given a map and then I had to write all the story around it. So, Very and that's a great way to go. And it's, I think it's a great way to um, to kind of plan a D&D adventure is if, you know, pick a map and then fill it out. Yeah, Jeff Stevens did that uh, when I when we wrote for his uh, Villains in Layers 4. He yeah. sent us out maps and I had to write an encounter around it and it was, yep. it was really cool. So. I think, yeah, I think I have a Jeff Stevens one that I did for him too, where I did that. Where it was, I can't remember if either I gave him, I think I, I think in that case, he actually put in a map order. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, who was it that, that did the map? Daniel Walthall. Daniel. I don't know that I've got <laughs> Daniel Walthall. He's great. Yeah. He I'll did, have to he, add he him to my, map. I'm going to write that down and add that to my yeah, list. Yeah. This is, this is one of his maps, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he does great. Really, really good. All right, that down map. when I need, need hand, some nice maps. Yeah, like Dyson, he does them all by hand. Yeah. Unlike uh, Dyson, his are <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that'll do it for our Dungeon Master tip. Uh, maps, use them for interesting locations. I don't have a title for that because we riffed it, but uh, there it Sorry. is. Sorry. No, that's okay, man. It's fine. I like riffed it because that means now I got another one for another episode that I don't got to write because it's already done. All right, our player <laughs> tip of the podcast is... Don't, Don't be, be a, a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by mastering that role-playing of an Eladrin. The Eladrin society straddles the boundary between the Feywild and the natural world. Eladrin build their elegant cities and towers in places of striking natural splendor, especially where the veil is thin between worlds. Long-lived and strongly tied to the Feywild, Eladrin have a detached view of the world. They also uh, often uh, have difficulty believing that events in the human world have much importance at all, really. Uh, their general detachment from the world can make an Eladrin seem distant and intimidating to many other races. Their fey nature also makes them simultaneously alluring and a little frightening at times. However, Eladrin take uh, friendship and alliances to heart and can react with swift fury when friends are endangered. They, uh, they live by a very, uh, the Eladrin also live by a very aesthetic, uh, philosophy common to the Feywild and personified by Corellin. Is it Corellin or Corellian? Uh, Corellin. I think it's um, Corellin, yeah. yeah. The god of beauty and patron of the Fey, Eladrin seeks to exemplify grace, skill, and learning in every part of life. From dance and song to swordplay and magic, Eladrin are close cousins to the elves and are occasionally called high elves or even gray elves. Two races hold the two races hold each other in high regard, and they share a burning hatred for their third branch of the race, the Drow. Um, I love this this detail. I pulled this right from one of my fourth edition books because I'm gonna be honest, I love fourth edition, and I've got to get use out of all my books. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, I thought this was a, a great little uh, uh, snippet about the expectation of the way the Eladrin is expected to behave. Um, do you? Is there anything? What do you guys think about this? Or do you have any additional uh, details to enhance to the role play of an Eladrin? Teleport a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is something I definitely leaned in quite a bit in fourth edition, just because it's like. 
their thing. It's something that, that differentiates differentiate them from other elves, especially when you built them in classes that had other teleport abilities on top of that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big the fan. The Bath Blade I built was really fun to play. Right. The, the thing that I really, I think I enjoy, because people often just compare elves and Eladrin to the same thing. They're not really. No. Um, and so no. honestly, I didn't really think anything about it until I busted out my fourth edition book that had way more interesting stories. <laughs> well, <laughs> that'll do it for our uh, player tip. Don't be a dick. You can avoid dickitude by role-playing in Eladrin. So, before we close out today, we have another fantastic gift to give away. Compliments of our man, Jeff Stevens. Our giveaway is Scourge of the Nightingale, Part 1, A Song of Love. A mass managed terrifies the region. Adventurers stumble into her scheme, the kidnapping of a famous performer known as the Devon Artist. Their mission is to deliver a ransom and collect Devon. And our winner today is P. Morton 90. Congratulations, uh, AP Morton. Um, if, yeah. you, if you enjoy the product, please consider leaving a review. One of the best things you can do for a content creator is telling the world how much you love their content. I'm sure Sly uh, or Mike, can, uh, sure. Mike yep. can agree with that. Uh, <laughs> if you didn't win, have no fear. You can head on over to CritAcademy.com slash Jeff Stevens, and there's lots of more fat loot so you can pick up for free. So do that. Before we uh, end our show today, um, Mike, would you like to give yourself and your content one more plug where people can find you, all that jazz? Sure. Uh, easiest place to get what I do is over at SlyFlourish.com. Awesome. Nice and easy. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I try to make it as easy as possible. <laughs> there you go, go there. Spend a little time on the site. Just explore and, and grab what you like. Thankfully, okay. everything's very self-contained over there. <laughs> I, I try to keep it pretty self-contained. <laughs> All right. Well. First of all, I want to take a second to thank you for coming on the show. I know you're, based on all the content you put out, you're a very, very busy man. <laughs> so um, I appreciate you taking an hour and a half out of your Happy day to, to talk no. to us. It's um, been a lot of fun. <laughs> for everyone else, I want to thank everyone else who joined us. And hopefully you all will join us on our next episode. We're going to be discussing Armament Quests. Take a journey to forge weapons of power. Um, I've done this in my games in the past, and I'm excited to write up some fun examples of quests to help the players build their own magic items. I think the example we've used before is a player trying to acquire a pristine ruby that is dipped into lava at the summer solstice and then attaching it to a hilt and then bathing the blade in the fire of a dra uh, red dragon's breath. <laughs> um, quests like that I'm excited to talk more about so hopefully you'll join us uh, if you do enjoy the show and you'd like to support us please visit CritAcademy.com follow us on social media leave us a review or pick up some of our best selling content on DMs Guild on our website or even on Amazon alright that'll do it I am your host Justin and I'm Mike Shea and I'm your co-host Austin I'm your co-host Ian thanks for listening keep your blades sharp and spells prepared heroes heroes